Blog Talk Radio.
Peace to you and yours. You are now rocking with the best. This is No The Ledge Radio. You know what I'm saying? It's Friday evening. We are back in the building with a renowned guest. You know what I'm saying? We are joined by the master teacher. There is no other Dr. Renoko Rashidi. He is going to be doing a primer, an introduction to his upcoming lecture, which will be taking place Sunday in Harlem, New York. Okay, family? This is going to be taking place at the National Black Theater, 2031 Fifth Avenue. That's 125th Street and Fifth Avenue in the historic Harlem, USA. It is going down at 4 p.m. That is Sunday, March 14th. Please, family, come out in unison and see the master teacher, Renoko Rashidi, do his thing in person. For now, we are going to, you know, give the audience a taste of what the brothers should be bringing through on Sunday, you know what I'm saying? So with no further ado, I'm going to open the line for the teacher, the master teacher, and um, get right into it, family. Caller, caller from 210, peace. How are you? All is well, and yourself? I'm all right. I'm in Washington, D.C. Just recently arrived. I was a group of close friends. Good Africans, Garveyites, and okay. I'm looking forward to coming up to New York on Sunday afternoon. What I want to talk about, though, of course, my presentation in um, in Harlem on Sunday is going to focus on the African presence in the Americas. Absolutely. I guess for the most part, ancient America. It'll be very, very visual. We'll look at African people as the first people or the descendants of Africa, the first people to set foot on the soil of what is. Uh, we call the Western Hemisphere or the New World of the Americas. We'll also look at African people and their role in the development of classical civilization in the Americas, the Olmec, the Maya. And my point is, is that I think it's something of a crime to teach an African-American child that their history began with slavery. So we're going to use that as the backdrop and then spend some time talking about African resistance to enslavement. Cotton picking don't move me as Malcolm said. So we're going to talk not just about Nat Turner, not just about Denmark Vesey and Gabriel Proctor and the Haitian Revolution, but we want to talk about resistance in other parts in the Western Hemisphere as well as those revolts. And then I want to spend some time talking about where African people are in Honduras and Guatemala and Venezuela and Colombia and Ecuador, you know, all over the Western Hemisphere in Bolivia and Peru, places, Argentina, what we normally don't expect to see African people, and in many cases I've been to those places myself. Right. And then I want to spend some time talking about Haiti. But I don't want to give the lecture over the telephone. I want to get people excited, but I thought that since we have this time together, yes. a few minutes at least, that we could talk about that global African experience. I would love to spend some time talking with you about India. India has the largest concentration of black people in the world. Africans in ancient China, in Japan, Africans in Imperial Rome, in ancient Greece, even a little bit about Africa itself. So I'm hoping that we can devote some broader attention to the global African experience at the same time encouraging people to come out on Sunday afternoon. We, we definitely could spend time dealing with our diasporic presence, you know what I'm saying, globally. I know that you have taken the effort to travel and actually see these things. So this is not any book knowledge that you're spitting at us. 
you've been these places, you have the proof, you know, a lot of the veils are being exposed at this particular time. And a lot of people are just coming into this information. So it is very necessary that we hear it from someone who actually has that empirical proof. Well, um, I think that um, there's nothing wrong with book knowledge. I think the book knowledge should supplement the primary research. Right, it's a primal. Well, yeah. For example, one of the people that really influenced me the most, I hope we have a good connection. I'm on my speakerphone now. If it's not good. You're good. You know, I, good. Okay, very good. It's easier for me. Um, the person, first of all, as a teenager, 14, 15 years old, I um, started listening to the speeches of Malcolm X. At that time, we had what we call LP albums, which I guess are a relic of the past now. But I was listening vinyl. to Malcolm. You talking about vinyl? <laughs> you talking about vinyl like it's eight track, like another era, another generation. Wow! But I would listen to speeches like the ballad or the bullet. Yes. Mess the grassroots, and Malcolm would say, our black shining prince would say. Of all our studies, it is history that is most qualified to reward our research. And that really motivated me to want to be a historian. And then I read a book as a college the university freshman called The Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. And here's a person who said we had a history before enslavement and that African people went all over the world in ancient times. They went to China and they went to India and they went to uh, Iraq and they went to ancient America and that just lit me up. And Chancellor Williams says he did a lot of primary research, but he said that before he did that, he read everything he could. He actually went to Oxford University. He studied in the libraries and what have you, so that when he went to Africa, he was prepared. He didn't just go as a novice. So I would not uh, disparage um, book learning, because okay. I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with the primary research. Let me uh, qualify that particular statement. It's not so much that I was trying to downplay book learning, but one has to, at some point, once you've acquired this amount of knowledge, seek forward to, you know, obtain some wisdom, go into this particular situation, you know, let your studies take you places rather than just mentally. So that's what I am acknowledging the fact that, you know, it wasn't only book studies. I would suggest that anyone to study something to actively get involved with it at some point, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I encourage people to travel, to go and see these things firsthand. I've been very fortunate. I've been to, um, I think, in another three or four months, I'll be able to say that I've been to more than 100 countries in like a 10 or 12-year period. I've been to 96 countries so far. So I've been very, very fortunate. Um, of course, it's been a very expensive process but worth every cent, and you learn so much. And I find what you learn most about is yourself. You see like a reflection of yourself in a mirror. And sometimes the things that you see are not very attractive. For example, I take groups to Africa now. I take This year I had seven tours planned. Right. And God willing, I'll be able to pull off at least five of them. One of them I've had to let go because I've been invited to speak at a conference in Nigeria in August, and I planned to take a group to Uganda and Kenya at that time, and I'd also planned to take a group to Haiti. But, of course, with the infrastructure like it is, that's simply not practical. 
But um, what I find is you learn a great deal, and mostly what you learn about is yourself. And a lot of us take the attitudes that we have from the United States and we imprint them on other people. For example, the U.S. obviously is a very powerful country. Yes. And a lot of African Americans, for example, go to Africa. They want to embrace Africa. They want Africa to embrace them. But there's also a sense of innate superiority, and that is because we have more than most other sisters and brothers. There's almost an instinctive feeling that we are better than other sisters and brothers, that we are superior to other sisters and brothers. And so when you travel, especially if you have the right mindset, you can be an ambassador. You can build bridges. And some of the places I've been, my brother, among Aboriginal Australians, among the black people, the untouchables of India, it's just been uh, life-changing experiences, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that for the world. Absolutely. So you have, you have noticed that, you know, as, quote, unquote, black Americans travel abroad, they go with a westernized mindset that kind of has them exporting this sense of superiority, you know, with them is, is, is second rate because they're feeling superior that they're an American. Yeah, you, you, we are spoiled in this country in terms of material things. We just have a lot of stuff, and you're used to certain things. You're used to, for example, I've heard sisters and brothers on tours that I've been a part of, not necessarily tours that I've led, but tours that I've been a part of for people that have gone to Ghana. And I've heard sisters and brothers say the Ghanaians stink. They smell bad because they poor people, and a lot of them don't have money for deodorant. Now, can you imagine that, saying it loud enough for people to, in Ghana, not saying it in the United States, but saying it in our sacred African motherland? That's one thing. Well, let me give you another example. To me, this is a good one. I went and took a group to Fiji several years ago, deep in the South Pacific, and the Fijians are wonderful. They all say they come from Africa, a beautiful set of islands in, in the South Pacific, beautiful black people with big afros and all of that. Right. And we're going from one place to another, one island to another. And somebody on my tour bus says, uh, Dr. Renoko, I've got to go to the toilet. Well, when you got to go, you got to go. So we started looking for a place to stop. So we found a community. And another sister said, well, i got to go too. And somebody said, well, if y'all going to get off the bus, I might as well get out and stretch my legs. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, I'll walk with you. And somebody else said, well, if you're going to do that, I might as well get out and smoke a cigarette. And somebody said, you got one for me. And somebody, I think it was me, said, if y'all going to do all that, I might as well get out and have a beer. And somebody says, well, no, I'm going to drink one with you. To make a long story short, everybody gets off the bus. We're having a wonderful time. And all these sisters and brothers started coming out of their houses. They see us as black people. We see them, and they come up to us and say, where are you from? We say we're from Africa. Everything is, we're having a glorious time. All at once, this little light-skinned child comes out, a very light-skinned boy with two dark parents. I mean, very, very light. And the thing that really made him stand out is they had light-colored eyes and a big, blonde, natural, big, kinky, Natural, huge one that Angela Davis would have been proud of. Everybody stopped what they were doing, put the uh, cigarette stubs out, the beer can down, come out the toilet, and we surround this little boy. You so cute. What's your name? Let me give you some candy. Can I take your picture? Finally, the bus driver had enough. Honked the horn, we all got on the bus. The youngest person in the group came up to me and said, Dr. Rashidi, what kind of message do we just send to those people? 
And the implication was, if you are lighter than the others, you get more attention than the others. I, brother, was just stunned by that. Mm. To me, I was drawn to this child simply because the child looked so different. Right. But down inside, I wondered if that was really what it was about. If I had been so impressed with the idea that the lighter you are, the more beautiful you are, if I'm just so ingrained with that mentality that I act upon that instinctively. And right. that was incredible. I've never gotten over that. And that causes me to question what I find attractive in a woman, beauty standards that I never probably would have really considered had I not had that kind of experience. And when I say travel is an educational process and a learning process, those are the kind of lessons that I'm talking about. And mostly what you learn about is yourself. And you cannot put a value on that. You can't put a price on a learning experience of that nature. And that happens to me in one form or another every time I go somewhere. Right. Because of these particular travels and your exposure to different cultures that, you know what I'm saying, are somewhat, you know, indigenous to us in our core, has that pretty much changed more of your mental attitude when you came back to the, back to the States in terms of how you relate to others that aren't as well-traveled and don't have a vast knowledge of, our existence throughout the diaspora? Well, it has, um, like anything else, it, it, it's, it's a balance. It's, a, it's not a this or that. But for example, I find myself a little more patient and yet a lot less patient. I don't want to have my time wasted. You know, I try to be patient with sisters and brothers who have not traveled, who um, have not had the fortune of having that experience but I also become impatient with people who are not interested in learning. It's one thing not to know. If you are ignorant, we can deal with that, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm very good at that, filling empty cups. But when you know you don't know and you're perfectly content to remain ignorant, then that is, to me, a frightening thing. How do you deal with people who know they don't know and are perfectly content to remain ignorant? And I haven't figured out a good solution for that. And if I knew that, I think we'd be far more, a lot closer down the road to African liberation than we currently are. I think that all too often there's a small cadre of us, and sometimes we immerse ourselves in that. I spend a lot of time on Facebook. You know, I got thousands of Facebook friends now, and we talk to each other. And sometimes I think we lose sight of what is going on in the broader African community. So on the one hand, it made me a little more sensitive but at the same time, it's, it's given me a degree of intolerance as well that I'm not really comfortable with. Okay, indeed. I want to um, pause for a second and open the line to bring my co-host in, Brother Red Pill. Peace. Peace, family. Peace, Peace. Elder. Brother Renoko, how's everything? Everything is just great, man. Everything is just great. Long live Africa. We are honored to have you on the show. And, um... Already, I just I just basically called in and already heard you touching on some very uh, pertinent issues and whatnot, dealing with the way that uh, we value, the way that we view beauty from our programming and whatnot. No, I think, I think that's something that's very, very profound. There's a brother in San Francisco that you all should have on your show at some point in time, if you haven't already. His name is Dr. Wade Nobles. He's a psychologist. And he gave an expression that I think is real deep, and that is the essence of power is the ability to define someone's reality and make them according to that definition as though it is a definition of their own choosing. Let me repeat that. 
the essence of power is the ability to define someone's reality and make them live according to that definition as though they chose the definition themselves. Mm-hmm. Defines what it means to be beautiful, what it means to be pretty, what it means to be fine. Who defines for us what it means to be successful? Even what it means to be happy. Who tells us that? What is success? Is success, you know, having a nice car, living in a community surrounded by people who don't care about you, marrying somebody who doesn't look like you, and success about simply having a lot of money. What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to have happiness and contentment? Is having a million dollars more important than being a good father or a good mother or finding a cure for cancer or helping um, build a black supermarket, Mm -hmm. you know, for black people to become self-reliant? What is success? And how do we define it? And I'm saying, and I'm agreeing with Dr. Nobles, that we allow other people to define our realities for us, and then there's a dysfunction, and we wonder what's wrong. Yes. Definitely. I uh, can attest for um, what you were saying, that our definitions for being successful and even being, you know, you know, when everybody says that they made it, you know what I'm saying? You the proverbial I've reached the, the, the mountain, I've made it and whatnot. But from what we you know, not to be judgmental, but from what we could see from looking outside and any because I travel a lot also, so any urban so called urban ghetto in America, you can see that the definition of success was not embraced by those who, you know, came into money because they did not do what it is that me, you know, that, that, that other people would define as successful or, or, or forward moving and whatnot. Well, look at what we do in our communities. For example, I just turned off a basketball game that ordinarily yeah. I was watching. I was watching Georgetown beat uh, Marquette, and I'm a big fan of Georgetown simply because they have a black coach and they have a lot of black players. But on a broader level, look at who. The vast majority, I think I can say this, the vast majority of our people tend to idolize black athletes, a Kobe mm-hmm. Bryant, a Tiger Woods, yeah. people who probably couldn't find the black community if they had GPS, if you had a, gave them a map. And yet many of us idolize these sisters and brothers because they've made a lot of money because they're stars, and some of them don't seem to have an ounce of sense in their head. So mm-hmm. what makes them great? What makes them, make, what makes them heroic? What makes them spokespersons for the African community. And I think that we are just living in, it's like we're living in a fantasy. You know, what makes us successful? Having how many women we can live with, how many children we father and walk away from, how long our fingernails are, how long the weave we got is, you know, whether it's hair or Indian hair or horse hair. What is it that means, I mean, I think you understand where I'm going with this. And I'm saying that all of this requires analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, I became a historian because I wanted to get to the bottom of it. This is my philosophy. What you do for yourself depends on what you think of yourself, and what you think of yourself depends on what you know of yourself, and what you know of yourself depends on what you have been told. And I think that's why the work that you are doing, the work that I'm trying to do is so important, is because we're trying to give a different vision of Africa, a different vision of African people, past, present, and future. And you can't put a, I mean, you can't emphasize that enough. 
Yes, I'm. I'm one that always says that your reality is your perception. Okay. Understand? So, and a brother came on a show on Tuesday, and he he brought his version of that, and he said that our our eyeballs, our retinas, our core is attached to our brain, which is linked to our mind. So, you a person might be sitting next to me walking down the street. And we see two total different realities out of you know coming forth from our eyes. We might be dressed the same and look the same, but he sees the world totally different from I see it due to where my mind is at. You know what I'm saying? Due to the level of information and knowledge that I might possess or the lack of thereof, and and as vice versa. So it is very imperative that when we look in the mirror, the person that we see, the person that's looking back at us. We have totally, uh, I'm talking about from the molecular all the way up into the cosmic understanding of who that person well, is. Well, I think you make a very good point. I think we could take it on an even another level. How do we, what is our perception of the color of God or the image of God? Mm-hmm. Most of us have deeply ingrained in our psyche, if we are Christians, and most of us are, or have been Christians at one time or another, the idea that God, that Jesus is a white man mm-hmm. with long hair and blue eyes, you know, and that's deep. Maybe yeah. that, that really gets to the core of it is our perception of the color of God. Shouldn't we feel that when we look in a mirror that we are seeing a reflection of God? I mean, shouldn't ultimately, shouldn't we have that kind of perception, as you pointed out? But how many of us actually have that? No, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I really thought in 2010 that the masses, and I don't know why I thought this, but I didn't think that the people were still under the white Jesus spell. I thought we dealt with that. Oh, no, brother. I went down south. I think we're going to be dealing with that for generations. That's you know, the situation that we are in today, it didn't just start yesterday. And it's going to take a long time for us to get out. And not just we're not just talking about African-Americans, but we're talking about African people around the world. I see more images of white Jesus in Ghana than I do in the United States. You know, that Africans on the continent are indoctrinated with the same degree of white supremacy, perhaps even more so, than Africans here. Africans in Brazil, even more than African-Americans. Africans in Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia and Colombia and Venezuela, they're even mm-hmm. more screwed up in the head, I think, than sisters and brothers in the United States. Because one of the things that we have going for ourselves is we have programs like yours. We have the luxury to sit and talk and reason with one another to try to figure these things out. The average person who is not in the United States is just stumbling trying to make it from day to day. The sister and brother in Haiti, for the most part, doesn't have the time to have this kind of dialogue. They don't have the radio. They don't have the Internet. Most of them don't have electricity. So at least you and I can sit and talk about these things and try to figure it out. And perhaps that's our destiny. Maybe, just maybe, we were taken out of that door of no return for a reason. Maybe, just maybe, mm-hmm. African diaspora, especially the United States, will be the ones to really light the spark that will lead to the ultimate liberation of Africans, those at home and those abroad. This is my question to you, uh, Brother Renoko. 
what degree of awareness or eye-opening demonstrations do the brothers and sisters of America who are fortunate to have their hands on such technology. Um, we are fortunate to be in certain positions that some of us are in, you know what I mean, because we could blow certain whistles. We could, rep- we could bring back hard evidence of the crimes that were committed and also of the, 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 the falsehood that's being promoted. What, what is it going to take for us to begin to get the, the, the eyes of the world, you know what I mean, our brothers and sisters around the world who, like you said, might be, um, you know, real busy, um, you know, just surviving for that dollar well, a day. What, what do we do to begin to get their ear or, or to, to, for them to, to even pay attention to what's going on in America? Because I know that it happened in the 60s. You know what I'm saying? When the brothers and sisters begin the movement out here and they begin to rise up and the people around the world not only were able to get the images that were being broadcasted, they were able to get the message. And I think that was what, that, that was, what was powerful because they were able to hear what brothers like Malcolm was saying. They were beginning to hear what brothers like uh, Muhammad Ali was saying out of his mouth. And it was logic and it was reason and it was something that they were that they were not used to hearing and this is what woke them up. I think that <clears throat> we are missing one of two factors. Now we had a great leader. First of all, I don't think we can afford to separate our struggle from the struggle of Africans in other places. I hear some people say we gotta get ourselves together in America before we can help anybody else. I think that we're fighting the same war on many fronts. Right. And that war is interconnected. We are one people wherever we are, and we find ourselves on the bottom of the pile wherever we are. Now, one of our greatest leaders is a man named Kwame Nkrumah. And Nkrumah used to say, he was famous for saying, thought without practice is empty, and action without thought is blind. In other words, we must be thinkers and doers. A lot of us study Kemet. We study ancient history as though we're living in the fourth dynasty on the Giza Plateau building the pyramid. You cannot go back and live in the past, but you can't forget that. Some of us don't want to study. I hear some brothers and sisters, especially young people, saying, forget all those books. I just want to do something. Well, you can't engage in blind action. That has to be guided. It has to be thoughtful. But you can't just be a thinker either. And so I think a lot of us, are one or the other, and we don't have a real balance. Now, you have to take the knowledge and do something with it. If you ain't going to do nothing with it, what's the point? At the same time, you just can't go off half blind without having some guidance that comes from knowing one's history. African proverb says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. In order to know where you're going, you have to have some sense of where you've been, and you have to study that. That information just doesn't come out of a void. You have to do some kind of research. And so I think that we have to, those of us who know a little something, I think that we have to also be practitioners. And those of us who are practitioners also have to be thinkers. And somehow we have to balance that together, and I don't think we've done a terribly good job with that. We have to merge them. I just want to add something in, because just last night I was reading this article about perception and about the, how the brain perceives when we're talking about our people trapped in this illusionary state. 
right? I think that we need to explain to them scientifically what's happened to them. And when they understand that they're being trapped by the thinnest veil of perception, then, you know, they understand that it's not that hard to pretty much break that spell. But it has to be visual, well, and they have to be engaged. What, yeah, read, we do have to be engaged. And I want to read this quote real I'm, quick. Have, but there's a brother I want to introduce you to at some point in time, if we have time. I'm staying as a guest of the President General of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. And yes. it was the Minister of Information. His name is Singo Baye, and the Minister of Information, a good brother, very close friends of mine, a brother named Zama Cook. And I'd like to, since we are on the phone at some point in time before the night is over, have at least Brother Singor, if not Brother Zama, if not both of them, talk a little bit about practice and how we take some of this information and put it into practice. I'm a very good historian, if I do say so myself, but I'm a historian. And, again, we have to be able to balance, you know, the, um, the historical aspect of it with the implementation of it. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We definitely want to bring those brothers on. You know, we can make some time available and talk about the practice. You know, everything is practical application. Not everything, like you said, it's a balance between one studying and crafting a particular plan. We're going through, just like how you craft a business plan, you weigh your pros and your cons. You have your plan A, your plan B, your plan C. But then at some point you have to put your plan into action. You have to have yep. your mentors in place to know that these particular moves are being checked and balanced. Now, you have to know I, what your goals are. Exactly. I've been in the movement. I'm 55 years of age, not 55 years old, 55 years young. I'm 55 years of age. I've been in the movement actively since I was 18. You know, I've seen people come and I've seen people go. And, uh, you know, you learn certain lessons. And I think, I guess, I paid my dues to the point that I can make certain observations that may ordinarily seem very arrogant, and even criticisms of our community. One criticism, for example, is I think the belief that somehow, some way, somehow, it's all going to resolve itself. That, some, that we, if we maybe pray hard enough to Jesus or Allah, whatever the case may be, one morning we're going to wake up and everything's going to be all right. You know, we mm-hmm. will be promised land. I know they believe it, and there's a degree of complacency. And then another component, another part of the equation is we think somebody else is going to do it. And, you know, this, I, I may believe in all of this. I may read the books. I may go to the lectures. But somehow when the heavy lifting is required, somebody else is going to do it. Somebody else is going to pay for it. Somebody else is going to do the hard work. Mm-hmm. And I to look ourselves square in the mirror and say, what do I do to lead my people to the promised land? That I can't wait for Marcus Garvey to come back in the whirlwind. That I can't wait for another Martin Luther King, another Harriet Tubman, that I have to be a leader myself, and I have a direct responsibility to help get us out of the hole that we're in. And nobody is going to t- – I mean, in other words, if you are not prepared to do the things that are necessary to liberate yourself, do you even deserve to be liberated? Now, that's a hard issue, but it's real. Jesus ain't going to do this for us. And I don't mean any disrespect or, you know, uh, sacrilegious. Uh, I don't want to have any sacrilegious. Because I respect people's religious faith. Yeah, but we understand. But the whole expression is God helps those who help themselves. And we must develop a race-first philosophy that George Clooney, that Angelina Jolie, that Brad Pitt, 
that Barack Obama is not going to save us, but that African people have within their hands the ability to achieve a great victory. And I use history as a component for that. But history is not the only. We need an economic program. We need a program that focuses on our health. God knows that. We need a spiritual component. We need all of those things, and all of those things go are equally important. Yes. This this month, we've dedicated this month to speaking about economic sovereignty. So I definitely want to speak to the brothers from the UNIA that are in your presence about, you know, continuing the legacy that the Honorable Marcus Garvey set forth in terms of, you know, laying foundations for economics. Well, uh, if you mind, let me introduce him then. And I'm, I'm at your disposal, but he's yeah. right here. I'm a guest in his house. He's a good brother. I have much respect for him. Absolutely. And I'm on my speakerphone, so if you don't mind, let me introduce it, and we can go from there. His name is Brother Singor Baye L. He is the recently elected President General of the UNIA and ACL, and he's never been shy in terms of having a few words. So, Brother Singor, perhaps you can take it from there. How are you, my brother? Peace, brother. Yes, how are you doing, wonderful. brother? I'm doing wonderful in yourself. That's good. I'm fine, man. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I've come in on a little bit of the tail end of the conversation, but you're speaking about sovereignty and economics. One of the big mistakes that a lot of our people have made about the legacy of the works, words, and deeds, not the personality of Marcus Garvey, is that Marcus Garvey built a black print of how we can return to regain our sovereignty. First of all, a lot of people romanticize about the word sovereignty. Sovereignty is a very serious uh, uh, thing, but first of all, you were given that from your birth, and we were hoodwinked by the system of white supremacy and others to give it back to someone else. In other words, what I mean by that is, first of all, if you're sovereign, that means you have control of a landmass. That means you understand nation building. That means you understand the basics that your people need and you need, food, clothing, and shelter. So we talk to talk, but when we start talking about sovereignty, every nation that has sovereign status, they may have their own army or they may have their own navy, but they also have their own means of economic development to sustain the, uh, 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 the uh, welfare of the mass base. You follow me? Yes, sir. Now, what I'm saying now is to rekindle that kind of energy after we have built all kinds of nations of other people all over the world, we have to think about race first, and we have to think about doing something for our own selves, meaning we can't depend on anyone outside of us to do what we need to do for ourselves. Sovereignty starts with your self-development. You follow me? And then you can start collectively addressing the issue of sovereignty. Now, what the UNIA has done in our 95-year history we have seen that it's very important to recognize that we have to have our own government. What we mean by that is that we cannot accept other people's government and think that we're going to get freedom from them. So what we've done in following the teachings of Marcus Garvey and the foundations laid in the early 1920s is we have re-implemented right where they stopped. We actually are government. But to get our people to understand what it requires to build a government is the basic issue, and that's coming back to what we were talking about earlier, practical application, meaning you can talk to talk about you are African and you want your own sovereignty. What neighborhood do you control? 
what economic systems do you control? If we don't control any, then that means we have to start dealing with industry. Two major industries that we should be dealing with immediately, and that is water, because I say as a visionary in Gavi, water is the most crucial element on the planet. You can't live without it. It's going to create wars in the future if we're not careful. Some people don't have pure drinking water, period, and those right. of us that do have access to pure drinking water abuse it. We have all kinds of bottled water companies, and we think that that water is pure when actually that water really isn't, which causes problems. The other piece is very critical is solar energy. The sun and water are crucial elements. So black people need to start right there, and then we can spread out to other industries because if we don't start there, th those are areas that are crucial to the very survival of every living thing well, on the planet. I absolutely would like to consult with you off, you know, off air about both of those departments that we are active in. You know what I'm saying? We have yes. access to uh, mineralized water, alkalized water, as well as a river upstate where this brother has a natural spring running through it. You know what I'm saying? So all of this is available to the family. He just needs people to be about something to come up there and haul the water off. You know what I'm saying? So there are a lot of brothers popping up with the Cajun machines and dealing with the alkaline water right now. Um, mm -hmm. I'm involved with uh, a brother out of Brooklyn that's handling that. And as well as there is an individual that we're in contact with that's dealing with free energy, solar energy, as well as water energy. Right. Well, we need to definitely consolidate because we have our hands on a lot of that as well. But let me just be very clear. Ganjin Water is an economic uh, prog program for Japan, not Africans. Yeah, Ganjin, those machines, and I want to be very clear to you because, see, we too often get caught up in other people's science par excellence. We have African brothers who have an expert aspect of clean water making it alkaline, 7.6, and it's top of the line. We don't need to buy machines from other companies. And then, you know, water, you can get water from hydrogenation, brother. You can get water from the air. So what I'm saying to you is that it's good what you're saying, but what we need to do is to consolidate because I know for a fact I can count 20 brothers and sisters around the country that have access to springs, have access to clean water. But we need to consolidate and build an industry where distribution is not an issue for individual groups. So Absolutely. what I'm saying, in terms of solar energy, we need to pull our resources together. Solar energy is all over the, all over the world. But until we pull our, our closed ranks, and that's what we say, we're calling on people to close ranks. We're not saying we don't have the problem. We have what is called a collective black people's movement. We got black people do everything that's required to be done for the survival of mankind. We don't do it for ourselves, though. We don't do it for ourselves. So what we find ourselves is, is helping everybody else build their, their dream, and we don't build our own. And we have the best engineers. We have some of the best scientists. We have some of the best uh, health practitioners. But we have to get back to understanding race first, and we're not talking about hating on anybody. We're talking about building our own self-development and a government. And, by the way, the UNIA is, knows what we're doing. We are a government. And we are set up to function like that. But if you're not first a member, you can't even apply for citizenship. Then you've got to be educated on what we're talking about because we're a globalist government. There's only one other globalist government in the world, and that's the Vatican. There's no other government that's globalist other than the Vatican and the UNIA.
And the UNI is race first, and the Vatican is uh, monopoly capitalism first. <laughs> so you can see these are the people that I interact with. Senghor, yeah. to me, is like a prince, a king, and we have a nice balance, and we understand each other. We understand the importance of the theory, but we also understand the importance of the application or the practical component. Right. And I think that we need more of that in our community on many different levels. Yeah. You know, we need each other, perhaps as much, perhaps more than ever before. And again, yeah. we want to emphasize that we can do. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we, you know, sometimes I think we empower our enemies far too much. That we have the ability to do any. I mean, we gave the world humanity. So, I mean, what, what, I mean, there's nothing that we can't do. And I think that the big damage that we suffer is psychological, that we are suffering not from so much physical enslavement, but psychological enslavement or the vestiges of enslavement. And that is what we must seek to to break down. I think every African should be in an organization. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not enough, as I said, just to read the books, but you got to be willing to implement the lessons from those books. And that's what I try to do. So in, my, in a sense, I'm different from a lot of my contemporaries. I'm not just an academician. I don't spend all my time in the library or on the computer or on the college campus. But I really want to take this to the community, and I hope that on Sunday afternoon in Harlem, beginning at 4 o'clock, I really intend to throw down. I intend to give one of the best lectures, hopefully, I've ever given. And I want to emphasize again that um, my presentations are going to be very, very visual. Just again to recap, because I don't want to get a lecture over the telephone. I want people to come out and see it for themselves. One, we're going to look at African people as the first people in the Americas, period. We're going to look at skeletal evidence. We're going to look at the evidence of fairy tales and myths and legends. We're going to look at um, DNA evidence. doesn't sound very sexy, but it's important. And then we're going to show images of Africans in ancient America. Then we're going to look at the resistance of Africans to the Americas. We're going to celebrate some of our greatest heroes, in spite of the fact, though, that a lot of them we've not heard of. I don't know how many of us know Gabriel Prosser. Gabriel Prosser, in 1800, profoundly affected by the Haitian Revolution, sought to organize 50,000 Africans. They were going to take the governor of Virginia hostage. They were going to take over the whole state and maybe sail to Haiti. And as it happened, the night before the, uh, the revolt was to take place, there was a massive thunderstorm. The bridges were washed out, and then some snitches, some house Negroes, told the master. And then Gabriel Prosser was captured. He was hung. His body dismembered, and the story goes, his body was fed to a group of hogs. We know about Nat Turner, who scared Europeans so much, I mean terrified Europeans, because even now I think that's the biggest issue that Europeans have. They are afraid of us, and I think they're especially afraid of strong black men. So we're going to talk about resistance, and then we're going to show images of African people throughout the Americas. So we're going to do it in the spirit of Garvey. We're going to do it in the spirit of Ivan Van Sertimer, my teacher and mentor, who was the world's leading authority on the African presence in ancient America. So we really want to encourage people to come out because I think we're going to have something very, very special on Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock in Harlem, New York. Absolutely. Now, 
you spoke on something earlier that I want to touch on, expound upon, and I saw it on one of your um, clips off of YouTube when you 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 was you was on the continent, and they were referring to Barack Obama as the leader of the black diaspora, quote unquote, black people everywhere in the world is how they were pretty much looking at him. How dangerous is that? I think more than that, people tend to see the symbolism of Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. I think people by now, a lot of the euphoria has worn off. I love Barack Obama. I want to say that for me. I love his family. I love Michelle. I love the children. I love to see a strong black family. I love to see black people who are intellectual, who are dynamic, who are great speakers, who act like they can operate on the highest levels of power. But I also realize that he's one person. You know, that he really, when the, uh, when the bell is rung, doesn't really pull the strings. You know, he doesn't have a whole lot of power. That power is symbolic. Right. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of the symbolism of that. So I don't think people see Barack Obama as the leader of the African diaspora. I think people have projected to me, whether it be Aboriginal Australians or sisters and brothers in Africa, or black people in other parts where black people in the Pacific Islands, they see Barack Obama as the president of the black world. But we still live in a world that is arrayed against us. Mm-hmm. And if Barack Obama was Superman, still he would be limited in terms of what he can do. So I just think that we have a lot of us, you know, I watched the fall. I followed the elections. I had tears in my eyes when he was declared the winner and all of that stuff. But reality is, <laughs> is different than perception. And I think right. that we have to realize that that's just one um, one part of the struggle, that's one chink in the arm of white supremacy, but the bulk of our work is yet to be done, and that is certainly not, uh, you know, the final result. I think our ancestors died and suffered on those slave ships for us to have a black figurehead as the president. Again, I love Barack Obama. I get angry when I hear us talk about the brothers, so I want to warn you, don't dog the brother out in, around me, but I also understand the reality of the situation that we're facing. We can't afford to have illusions anymore. We don't have the luxury of kidding ourselves and playing with ourselves. We've got to look this devil straight in the eye. And so I think that people perceive him not as the leader of the African diaspora, but as the president of the black world for whatever that's worth. Okay. So whatever you were going to say bad about Barack Obama, shove that for me and say that for next Friday's show, all right? Don't go there right now. Nah, nah, actually, (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything bad about the brother. I have somewhat of a different understanding about what he's doing and and the process through which he's using to utilize that. I'm not under any illusion that he is the, quote-unquote, free leader of the black world. You know what I'm saying? So I don't have that emotional attachment. All right, let's talk about about something else, brother. We can talk about black people in Japan. We can talk about black people in Australia. We can talk about black people in China. Let's talk Let's about the black people in the White House. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talk about the importance of symbolism and imagery. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Especially via your travels, you are specifying that this Sunday that your lecture will be image heavy. Now, as quote-unquote black entertainment being America's, you know, pretty much their number one export. And a lot of those symbols and images dealing with us, 
what has been your reception globally trying to dismiss the imprint of those images that have been sent out via your BTs, MTV, Viacom machines? Brother, we got a long way to go, man. And again, I just keep emphasizing that the same person who who butchered us psychologically in America has done the same thing in Africa. You know, you hear black people in Africa, young people now, using the N-word more, losing respect for elders with their pants sagging down. You know, basic values. I found in Senegal, for example, where you have some of the blackest people in the world, I see people bleaching their skin. I see people with long, blonde weaves. I see people with blue contact lenses, and it's, it's appalling. We expect that in the United States, but when we see it in the motherland, when we right. see it in other parts of the world, um, it really just breaks your heart. And so, you know, our struggle is far from over. We have a long way to go. And, again, I just put a lot of emphasis on history. If you think you never did anything, you never do anything. That's why I said at the beginning that perhaps the greatest crime you can teach a child is that their history began with slavery. If you're looking at the continent of Africa, you could say perhaps the greatest crime you can teach is that their history began with colonization. So let's just keep in mind that what happens to us here is not isolated to us here, and that same phenomenon is happening to African people in the four corners of the world. Right. So globally, they're under that particular illusion. Big time. You know, if you – colonization is still real, but it's not called colonization anymore. I think we can refer to it as neocolonialism, which is a very dangerous thing because I think many people have the illusion of independence. You can say the illusion or the word you used earlier was perception. Africa, and it's ironic, Africa, as Peter Todd said, Africa is the richest place with the poorest race, Oh, my, oh, my, what a disgrace. Africa is the wealthiest continent in the world, but it also has the poorest people in the world, and that's, that's a crime. That's a shame. And I think that we can do something about that. One of the things we can do is invest. We can make money in Africa, but we can also stimulate the economy in Africa. And we shouldn't be afraid of the idea of making money. We need money to make this thing happen. Revolution is not free. And so we have to find ways to generate that, and I think, Investing in Africa is very important, but my job, again, is to raise the level of consciousness, to give us a sense of African consciousness. If African people in the United States have these various resources, but we fail to see what our connection to Africa is, then we might as well not have it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Good point. Good point indeed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I see people with quote-unquote money, you know, i got a few friends that, consider themselves probably comfortable in the department of, of, you know, acquisitions, and they're not happy. They're they're always still looking for something that's just not there. You know what I mean? And the acquisition of paper currency is just not going to cut it. Like you said, what is success? You know what I'm saying? What is a pocket full if you can't do something small like, you know, Build an organic supermarket in, in, in Harlem on 125th. There's not one 24-hour fruit and vegetable stand. Now, well, Brad, Bush, where I come from on Church Avenue, there are five on each block. 
and they ranked, they was making $2 million a year. This was when they did the report back when the people started protesting the uh, the Korean march because they was, you know, being discriminatory towards sisters. So this was back then. But in all of Harlem, there's not one. Well, it's not just Harlem. That's black communities throughout the America. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in not just out of the United States, but I travel extensively in the United States. If you go to the Midwest, for example, the Arabs control virtually the entire retail economies in, in states like Michigan, Detroit, Chicago, in Washington, D.C., Arabs and Indians seem to control it. So it's not just Harlem. We could ask ourselves the question, what do black people produce? What do we manufacture? We don't manufacture the basic necessities. We don't manufacture toilet paper. We don't manufacture shoestrings. We don't, as you say, we don't have a supermarket, but we are tremendous consumers. Mm-hmm. We make the economy go. And black people tomorrow, and I ain't going to buy no more of that, this economy will come to a standstill. And sometimes yeah. I don't think we realize the power that we have, but that we are not exercising. We can do this thing. I don't spend time anymore talking about all the terrible things white folks have done to us. I haven't forgotten, but I haven't forgotten. Most of it ain't asked for forgiveness. They don't think they have anything to forgive. I put the emphasis on us. In other words, you can blame other people for your victimization, but for your salvation, your liberation, your rehabilitation, that's your job. And it's only your job that nobody can save you but you. Nobody can save us but us. So let's get to work. Absolutely. I agree 100%. You know what I'm saying? That the only way that this thing is going to turn around is by our hands. You know what I'm saying? And so let me let me do this. Let me give uh, a bit of an overview of the global African presence. And then if you want to have some callers, we can do that. Yes. Otherwise, I'm going to see you all on Sunday. But let me say this. Humanity began in Africa. A lot of times when I start my presentations, I start by asking people, what do you think of when you think of Africa? And people basically tell me wild animals, of primitives, of starving people, of corrupt governments. And so I have to begin to deconstruct that. And I say, you know, Africa is where the first people came from. Africa was the birthplace of humanity. Africa is where people first stood on two feet. Africa is where people first had shoes, where first wore clothes, first counted, first buried the dead, first played music, first had a house. First charted the stars in the heaven. First had philosophy and morality and religion, science. And then those Africans gave us the seeds of civilization in the Nile Valley, in the ancient river valleys of Iraq and Pakistan and China. And then the enslavement process began. Africa was invaded. The family couldn't keep it together. And we suffer from that today. But we don't want to start with that. In Asia, for example, I think we might find more African people or black people in Asia than maybe in Africa itself. India has the largest combination or concentration of African people in any one country in the world. India has a black population of more than 300 million people. Hmm. And some of them are the most oppressed people in the world. They're called Dalits or black untouchables. Untouchables. You You have Africans in Turkey, Africans in Iran. You have black people who were very important in the development of Islam. Even the lineage of the prophet Muhammad himself was African. You have the Shang dynasty in China, the people of, called the Shang 
uh, were described by their successors as having black and oily skin. You have um, uh, the, the expressions in Japan, the, the proverbs that say, for a samurai to be brave, he must have a bit of black blood, or to make a good samurai, half the blood in, in one's veins must be black. You have black kingdoms in Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand and Burma. So you have that. You have blacks who helped bring civilization to Greece. You have African people in Greek mythology. You have an African dynasty at the height of imperial Rome. You have African popes, African saints, African martyrs, African theologians, African writers, African senators, African emperors at Rome. You have the black people called the Moors who reintroduced civilization to Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. Black Vikings, black, um, black Madonnas, black saints. You have great black individuals like Alexander Pushkin, the father of Russian literature. You have a black man in France named Alexander Dumas, whose grandmother was born in Haiti. Dumas is the person who wrote Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Man in the Iron Mask. He's the person that said, one falling off one. He said, your work may be finished, but your education is never completed. He said, a man's mind is elevated to the status of the women with whom he associates. So you have great black leaders in Europe. In Australia, you have black people as the first people. You have... Um, the near destruction of black people at the hands of the British in Australia. You know, until 1967, black people in Australia were not considered human beings. And so you have that component. You have black people scattered all over the Pacific Islands. And so this is a part of our legacy as well. So I would invite anybody who might want to call and ask a question. You know, we can have comments. Otherwise, I'll save some of myself for Sunday. But before I leave, let's at least allow Brother Singhorn to give us uh, some final words and maybe give a contact um, so people can reach out to him if they so desire. I think he's about to leave us, so let us allow him to have just a few words before we go further. Yes, indeed. For my audience, hold on one second, Brother. For my audience out there, anyone that has questions for Dr. Renoko, please call in. The call-in number is 347-637-2135. Call is in the queue. Just raise your hands, and I will get to you promptly. Peace, brother. Brother Seymour. Yes, my brother. I just want to say real quickly, brother, that uh, man can do what man and woman have done. We can do it, brother. There's nothing that we cannot do. I heard Renoko say that earlier. It's very important for us to have understand that our willpower, and we must tap into that. The way you can contact us, brother, at the UNIA ACL of the world, uh, it's simply by going to www.cbpm, for Collective Black People's Movement, .org. The UNIA website right now is being refurbished. It's under construction. But it is www.unia-acl.org. But please go to the Collective Black People's Movement site because we have a database of over 22,000 people around the world that are doing different things, and that's what we're doing is collecting what we're doing. Now we have to consolidate how we close ranks and to do something of significance for not only ourselves, our children, and the generations to come, but practical application is what we need to be about in the 21st century because there's nothing that we cannot do. We've built every civilization, and we need to sankofa, go back to the great civilizations of ancient times that dealt with Mahat. 
So I just want to say that uh, thank you, brother, for the time. Brother Renoko Rashidi is not only active with us, he's one of the world's leading historians and has traveled around the world to put his feet down with where he researches. That's a big difference than going into just a, a book and researching, but to go and put your feet down on the ground of what you're, you're researching is, is, is something that uh, uh, is just it's, 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 it's very important that we do that. Everybody can't do it. I always joke with Renoko is that I, when I grow up, I want to be able to say I'm like him. He's been to almost over 100 countries. That, that, that's, that's incredible for a historian. I mean, I don't think you can tell me too many other historians that have achieved that. I mean, I don't even think a lot of them set out to achieve that because there's so much in the world that you could get caught up in any one particular part. But by traveling all around the world, we'll see that we are from north, south, east, and west, and we cannot forget that some of the best of us might be in places we don't even know about. So I say one guy, one anyone destiny, brother. Thank you very much. I look forward to hearing from you. You can always call me at 202-256-2518. I'm not the kind of president like Barack where I'm locked around, folks, and you can't get to me. You can get to me. I'm a, I'm a servant. I'm a, I'm a humble servant. Not to knock Barack, though, because I, I have an utmost respect for anybody that can lead a country as backwards as America. However, However, it is not about me, he, or she. It is about we, collectivity. And the 21st century, if you really want to learn about true sovereignty, you know that the more you know, the more you should know you don't know. Right. Well, I do want to ask you, uh, Brother Singer, do you feel like a synthesis between with Brother Marcus Garvey left as well as with Brother Noble Drew Ali left? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To unlock this door? Absolutely, they're one, they're one, brother. But you see, we get caught up in uh, not hearing what the, the, the teachers told us. Honorable Noble Drawley said, don't canonize him. Deal with the works, words, and deeds. Marcus Garvey said, up you mighty race. He didn't say, follow me, oh mighty race. He said, up you mighty race, accomplish what you will. So what we have to do is to be the Noble Drawley's today, not not Noble Drew Ali and the person of Noble Drew Ali, but we have to be the Singors, the Renokos, the Zamas, and we have to do the kind of work that Noble Drew Ali and Marcus Garvey did in this day and time. And I believe if Honorable Noble Drew Ali was here and Marcus Garvey, they would be saying, what have you done for yourself today? Not have you followed what I said. What have you done for yourself today? Because they mapped out Black Prince for us to take to another level. They didn't map out anything for us to hit our brothers over the head that would sleep and say, well, I got it and you don't. They, they said, up, raise up. And, I mean, all the teachings that I've studied of both of them, they're very clear in what their, what their words, words, and deeds were. So I see complete, uh, 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 a lot of parallels in those two brothers, but at the same token, they were their individual selves. And we got to understand that all of us have something to contribute to the collective. So it's not about Honorable Noble Drew Ali, the person, and it's not about Marcus Garvey, the person. It's about their work and what they established for us. And it's our job now. They did their job. It's our time now to do our job and follow out. And if you want to follow some of the, the, the black print that they laid, fine. But in the final analysis, your children are going to say, what did you do? Mm-hmm. I said, what did you 
do? What did you do? Not what, what happened that, that you followed somebody else did. So it's not about our – and see, here's one very important point I'll leave with you that I learned from those two giants. It's not about one. Two come from one, but from – to get two, you've got to have four. Four bring two and then eight, and it increases. So the more you deal with a person who's an individual who serves, the more you've got to find out how they got the light from before their time. And that means you've got to deal with numbers of people. So it's too many names to name. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, Garvey gave his life. Noble Drawley gave their lives, but they were inspired by people who came before them. And that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do, and that's not to take any way away, anything away from their legacies and their great works. That is just to say it's not about, the, and I'll say this, brother, and I hope everybody understands, it's not about the cult of the individual or the individual group. It is about the collective will and power, and that's the way we will get to the next phase in the 21st century. And I love all of the great legacies left us by individuals. And I don't want to be too long, but our ancestors are waiting and watching now, and children still crying and dying. So obviously we're still apathetic and don't get the real reason why they gave their lives for you and I. Mm. So you see, brother, when you do an interview with me, you get a whole lot. You get more than you, you bargain for. But Brother Singhor is so powerful, I couldn't help but uh, introduce him to you all, and I'm very pleased that we had the opportunity to have him on the air for a few minutes. Thank brother, you for you, your wisdom. Is, is is greatly appreciated, Brother Singer. You will definitely be hearing from me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the chat room is also responding uh, very positively in terms of what you're saying. I just want you to drop your contact information one more time. Singer is gone for now. I'll okay. see if I can give, I'll give my contact information, and people right. can get in touch with me. Uh, people can get in touch with him through me. In fact, if people want to get in touch with me directly, they can email me at Renoko, spelled R-U-N-O-K-O, R-U-N-O-K-O at yahoo.com. And after the show, you can call me. I'll leave that number at the end because I don't want the number to, I don't want the phone to light up while I'm doing this interview. Right. And I'll sing or we'll be back momentarily, and perhaps he might have a last word or two before the night is over. Absolutely. Uh, I do have callers in the queue. I'm going to get to them. Before that, I just want to ask you one question in terms of the early African presence in the Americas. Is your presentation going to be touching on the Montauk Indians at all? Because I I routinely see people pretty much passing up the Algonquin, as they're um, called, as, you know, having the necessary links. Back to well, I'm going to touch on that. It won't be the the major focus of my presentation, but I'm going to look, among other things, at African people, at black people, as the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere. We are the original people in Africa and around the world. And so to the extent we can look at the Algonquin, the Ouachita, you know, and other Africans, the Anasazi, as a part of that process, we're going to do that. And I will be showing some images. So I think we're going to have something for everybody. And we want it to be a unifying factor, not a visit factor. I'm not coming to debate. I'm not coming to argue. I'm trying to show the history to bring our people together. And so, yes, we will include that as a portion of our program. we got plenty of time. 
You know, I expect to speak for two, three hours and have a lot of time for questions and answers. Okay. I'm bringing thousands of photographs, of which I hope to show at least a couple of hundred. So okay, I think absolutely. there's going to be uh, quite a, an opportunity to expose our people to a lot of this information if they're not familiar and refamiliarize a lot of them who do have some inkling of the greatness of our people in the Americas. Absolutely. I definitely look forward to it. I will be there in attendance, and I'm sure that, you know, those who hear this call will definitely hear the call and show up as well. Right now, Can we going to um, call this address in the specifics oh, yes, of the yes. please? Absolutely. It is going down Sunday. We are talking about Sunday, March 14th. Right, this is going to be at 4 p.m. at the National Black Theater. The address for the National Black Theater is 2031 Fifth Avenue. That is off of 125th. So you're talking about Fifth Avenue and 125th. The 4 train goes there, the 2 train, the 3 train, uh, the A, B, C, D to 125th. You know what I'm saying? Come to Harlem. Harlem welcomes you. So please catch us on Sunday, March 14th, African Presence in Ancient America. It will be going down at 4 p.m. Donation being asked is $20 for vendors that want to get involved. is a $30 setup fee for which you can contact the Brother Rich at 845-405-6441 or Brother Black Dot, 917-292-6769. Or brother A. A. Rashid at seven one eight five zero six four five one eight. And with that, I want to open the lines because there are callers in the queue that have questions. Okay. Okay. Hold on one second, brother. Caller calling from two six seven. You are now rocking with the best. Peace. Indeed. Peace. Peace. This is the priest king. Um, peace. I have a question. Uh, peace. I have a question for our brother Ronoko. Um, you mentioned the Romans. Right, like the early Romans, there was the African Empire. I, I kind of was doing a lot of research on that. I, um, you know, I discovered you know, basically, you know, Julius Caesar was born in Africa about um, the service and all. A lot, most of, you know, um, a lot of these people were Africans, like um, and they had they tied their roots back to Africa. My question to you kind of was about um, the Pisos family. Like, did you hear? Uh, have you ever heard about the Pisos? No, I don't believe that. How do you spell that? Um, P I S O S. So I'm not familiar with them. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, oh, well, no, it, it was a, um, it was a supposedly like a Roman family that was that supposedly uh, wrote the um, the Old Testament. No, you got me there, brother. I'm not familiar with them. Oh, okay, okay. No, that was that was basically my question. I just wanted to, to see if you um, but the theory. My my question was um. You know, I'm like like about Rome being a, a, a African empire. Was it kind of like you know like what happened? What was the fall of when did like the Slavs or like the Slavic invasion? You know, like truly, truthfully come in? Was it you know was it about religion? Like how did they really take over? That's my really thing. Like you know, I don't think they really went to war. For my for my research, like kind of what happened to the African Romans that was run that was running the show. Now let me just be really clear on this. I'm not saying that Rome was an African empire. If I implied that, then I I misstated. I'm saying that at the height, hear me now, at the height of Imperial Rome, you had an African dynasty. And this dynasty is called the the Severan Dynasty, S-E-V-E-R-A-N. 
And this dynasty was begun in 193 A.D. by a black man from Libya named Septimius Severus. He reigned from 193 to 211. He is followed by his son, a brother named Caracalla, who reigned for 10 years, who was murdered by the Praetorian Guard. And finally, in 235 A.D., Alexander Severus, the last representative of the Severan dynasty, was also murdered by the Praetorian Guard. So be very clear. I'm saying that from 193 to 235, at the height of Imperial Rome, there was an African dynasty that, got, that guided the destiny of Rome. I'm not saying that Rome was African, but I'm saying that like any ancient empire, there was a heavy African component within it. And that component, the Severan dynasty was very distinguished. They made many contributions, some positive, some negative, but that they were African. That's all that I'm saying. Okay. Oh, no, no. I, well, my statement is that Rome is definitely an African empire. Um, if you research what Julius Caesar is from, when he was born, he, he comes from from Africa. His father was the governor of Asia Minor. Um, the civil wars before Caesar was born was because Italy and Spain was upset because they wasn't getting a good share of the empire. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, so this is definitely an African empire, like, if you go into that region. I was just trying to figure out where it. I, I'm definitely familiar with, with the service and how he went all the way into, um, to England and fought and, and um, civilized the, the, the Britain. So I'm familiar with that. It's definitely an African empire. I just wanted to know how they felt because I'm not really getting the whole story on, you know, what collapsed. But I, I understand what you're saying, though. But, yeah, my statement was that it's an African empire. I know not to say that you said but I'm thinking that it is though, based upon my research. All right, well... <laughs> I'm going to have to do a little research. But one thing we know, empires tend to rise and fall. And maybe that's what happened to Africa to some extent, that things run in cycles, that we had um, a great experience, that we fell, that we collapsed, and that I would hope, I would like to think that we're rising again and that this is a part of another resurrection of Mother Africa. But um, in terms of Africa, Rome being an African empire, I need to study that and perhaps listen to you and the information that you're able to provide on the subject. But I would limit myself, for me personally, to the Severan dynasty, and you are correct. He did die in England in 2000, I'm sorry, England in 211 AD, leading a military campaign in York, which is in the northern part of England. But you also have African saints, like St. Tertullian, who is supposedly responsible for Latin being the official language of the church for a long time. You have um, St. Augustine, St. Cyprian. You have at least three African popes. You have African martyrs who were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. You have African senators. You have a writer, one of the most famous writers in the history of Rome, a man named Terence Afar, the person who said, I am a man and therefore there is nothing human alien to me. And so I think that for the most part, these people are left out of history. When we watch TV or when we have a general overview of history, it's almost as though history is made up of white men. There were never people of color. There were never women who played a part. And I think that that's a part of history that needs to be destroyed. That is his story. Or as Napoleon Bonaparte was wont to say, a fable agreed upon. And I think that that is a destructive part of the history because it's left us out altogether and thinking that we had no history, that we never did anything, that we were only slaves or colonial subjects. And that is the part of the mythology that we must destroy. Yes. 
for the for the caller, I would recommend that you look into a lecture series done by True Master that's dealing with the Holy Roman Empire and the base up in Kohlberg, Germany, Bavaria, Germany. Um, and you could get some clues from there as to our presence in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, I want to thank you for your for your call and your questions. They were very right, well thanks. received. I'm going to go and take the next caller. Caller calling from area code five six one. Peace. Peace, caller. Five six one. Hello. Peace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just want, um, as the brother could he touch on Haiti a little bit and uh, what's going on over there right now and a little history down um, from what happened in 1804 and everything. All right, thank you for that. I think I might have mentioned at the very beginning of the program. Maybe I didn't. I've been doing that. You did. You said you were going to go into it. So perfect segue, bro. Peace. So many lectures and so many radio interviews, and I'm <laughs> starting to get a little confused about what I said and what I didn't say. I was in Haiti in December. I was in Haiti about five weeks before the big earthquake. It was my first trip to Haiti, or Haiti, as it was called by the Tiano, Tiano people, so-called Native Americans. And um, I always knew I would go to Haiti. Haiti is a country that lives and breathes history, and we owe the Haitians so much for the sacrifices that they made. And the interesting thing about it is, just before I got ready to go to Haiti, I began to reconsider. I began to think, Do, can I really afford this trip so that maybe I'll go in January? Think of that. Now, if I had waited, I could have been there during the earthquake or the infrastructure is so badly damaged now that it might be months or years before I was actually able to go. Haiti at one time was the richest colony in the Western Hemisphere. It was... Um, a French colony. It was very wealthy uh, with the production of, um, I guess, uh, sugarcane production. Yes. And uh, But the Africans were treated very badly. Africans in Haiti were taken largely from Benin, Nigeria, and Congo. And they were taken from Africa, but they took Africa with them. And thus the survival of the African religion commonly called Vodun or Voodoo, which is just a traditional African religion that can be found in various parts of Nigeria and Benin even today. So in the 17, late 1700s, the Africans revolted. There's a famous speech given by a brother from Jamaica named Bookman Duty yes. that called on the Africans to rise up and throw up, you know, to disavow their allegiance to the gods of the white man. And they had a massive revolt. The first great leader that the revolt threw up is the brother that we all know named Toussaint La Overture. Other great leaders included Henri Christophe, but to me the greatest of the leaders of Haiti is a man named Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who it could be called a black nationalist, a pan-Africanist, um, a militarist, a great leader. And in 1804, I believe January 1st or January 2nd, 1804, he was declared emperor of Haiti. Unfortunately, he was assassinated by Haitians about two years after that. When I went to Haiti, I actually went to, um, I paid homage to his grave site, which is a part of the National Museum in Port-au-Prince. 
Uh, Haiti has been made to suffer. I think Napoleon Bonaparte, a white man from France or Corsica, who became emperor of France, said it best when he said, I am not in Haiti to fight because of commerce, because of money. I am here to make an example. I'm paraphrasing now. I'm here to fit the black people of Haiti from showing that black people anywhere can be successful. So Napoleon was a notorious racist. Haiti was occupied by the American government, by American soldiers. Haiti was forced to pay reparations to the French for the loss of their property, that property being us. All the time I was in Haiti, I never felt like I was in the Caribbean. I always felt like I was in Africa. And I could tell many, many stories. I was around ordinary people. I never stayed in a hotel. I stayed in a middle-class home. And even there, there was never running water. There was never a flushing toilet. There was never uh, electricity. You know, I learned so much. I did several lectures. I met many, many people, high and not so high. But one of the things that stands out is during one of my last lectures on my last day in Haiti at the university, after it was over, there was a reception in my honor, and a group of Haitian um, students came up to me, two brothers in particular, and they said, Dr. Rashidi, you're a historian, right? I said, yes, I am. They said, can we ask you a question? I said, anything. And the question was, do you think it was a mistake for us to break with France and declare our independence? And it just broke my heart to know that these sisters and brothers have suffered so much that some of them would even question whether it was correct to have the revolt in the first place and strike out for their own independence and sovereignty. So that's a little bit of background about Haiti. We can never repay the debt that we owe Haiti. Now, the earthquake itself, a lot of the problem is a lot of the supplies that have been sent to Haiti, and this is what people tell me in Haiti, have never gotten there. A lot of those supplies are now in the Dominican Republic, are there, are there in Miami. And the people who need the stuff the most have not been given access to those. And that's very frustrating and very heartbreaking. I know that a lot of the people I was with lost loved ones. People who were in the earthquake told me that whole sections of Port-au-Prince just opened up and swallowed houses and neighborhoods and people. It looks like the death toll is going to be about 300,000 people. And for all intents and purposes, the city of Port-au-Prince, a city that was built for 250,000 people, but at the time of the quake housed 2.5 million people, has virtually been destroyed. And now it's raining, and the people are in camps, and there's just misery. So my heart goes out to the sisters and brothers of Haiti, and I hope that we will continue our efforts to do whatever we can to lend a lifeline to our sisters and brothers there. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah and also um, I just wanted to know, like, because um, I was born over there and everything, and I left when I was 12 years old. And from what I was told, it was like right before the earthquake happened in Haiti, it was like Bill Clinton was over there buying a whole bunch of land, and a lot of people from all over the uh, all over the world was investing money in Haiti and everything. I don't know anything about that. I had not heard that. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, caller. Appreciate that. All right. There are more callers in the queue. I'm going to be taking a caller from area code 610. 
Peace, bro. You and I rocking with the best. All right, brother man. Peace. Peace. Uh, I'm from uh, what we know as PA. Uh, brother, I have a question pertaining to uh, numerology and the, uh, the date April 4, why, why Jay-Z and Beyonce were married on a day. And why now, brother, before you go any further, uh-huh. I'm a historian. That's what I know. Now, if you have a question about Africa or African history, I'm down. Uh, but but wasn't numerology a part of our history? It, I don't know anything about numerology, nothing at all. Oh, okay. All right. Well, okay, Bruh. well, one, uh, maybe this topic you can uh, touch on. Um, all right. When you say, you said that it was a brother that said, I am a man and there is nothing alien of me. Who, who was that again? This is an African in Rome named Terence Afar. Terence? Sometimes he's called Terence the Niger. Terrence. Meaning he was black, he was African. And the expression is, I am a man, and therefore nothing human is alien to me. Oh, nothing human. Man, and therefore nothing human is alien to me. He was studied by Julius Caesar, by Horace, by Cicero. He's maybe the greatest writer in the early history of Rome. And his name is Terence Akbar, A-F-E-R. Oh, Akbar. Yeah. Okay. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I am going to call. I'm going to go into this, the next call that we have. This is from a uh, a one 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 area code caller. You are on. Peace. Otap. Otap. Hello. Oh, okay. I have a question for Mr. Renoko. Yes, indeed. Um, Mr. Renoko, the Moors they left Africa and they um. They went up into Spain, and then they went to Europe. Are these the same Moors in America that claim to be from the Moor Science Temple? Well, I think the Moor Science Temple claims a relationship with them. Let's talk a little bit about the Moors historically. The yes. first time we hear about the Moors, first of all, the word Moor is European. It comes from the Greeks, and it, it comes from the word Mari or Maris. M-A-U-R-U-S, M-A-U-R-I, means black or scorched. And it was a term that was applied to the population of northwest Africa, meaning Algeria, Morocco, Mauritania. The first time we hear about them, they're fighting in an African army alongside the great African general Hannibal, who was the commander-in-chief of the Carthaginian army about 200 B.C. Eventually, the Carthaginians are defeated, and the Moors fight alongside the Romans. They form a cavalry contingent in the Roman army. And then we hear about the Moors again, led by a black woman named Al-Kahina, A-L-K-A-H-I-N-A. And the, these Moors fight the Arabs who are invading Africa. Many of them, ultimately they are defeated by the Arabs, about 700 A.D., and many of them convert to Islam. And in 710 and 711, they go from, they leave Morocco, they go into Spain, and they dominate much of southern Europe, Spain, Portugal, and even France for hundreds of years. They reintroduce civilization to Europe. Now, as I understand it, there are many sisters and brothers today who call themselves Moors, and they, they, they claim a relationship to them. But the historical Moors were those people who came from northwest Africa, who reintroduced civilization to Europe, 
and dominated Southern Europe, especially Spain, from 711, and they were finally defeated in 1492. So they have nothing to do with the Moorish Science Temple. What kind of organization is that then? Well, I think you would have to ask a member of the Moorish Science Temple that. But I told Moors in general, those sisters and brothers named Bay and L in the United States, who I have great respect for, there's a relationship that they claim to those uh, Africans called Moors who went into Europe, and many of them say that Moors came to America before Columbus, and they're probably right. I would just like to see more documentation, more evidence for that. But I am not here to disparage the Moors or show them any degree of disrespect, uh, and I'm sure you weren't trying to do that either. But what the exact relationship is, perhaps a person from the Moors Science Temple would be better qualified to answer that question than me. Yes. Okay. For the caller. Thank you very much. Wait, Thank you. For the caller that's on the line, uh, we can actually answer that question for you, being that we are qualified to speak about Moorish affairs. And um, I would just, you know, I would tell the caller to basically immerse herself in studying because this is not a just is it's not a simple answering question when it comes to brothers and sisters who are claiming bloodlines that they identify with out of Africa. So, you know, the the noble prophet Drew Ali, he came forth and he restored history that was buried and hidden from the, the inhabitants of the Americas of their Moorish history, of their African history. So, you know, that's that's the answer to that. Yes. Uh, okay, I maybe we could. kind of disrespectful. I just kind of confused. No, no, no. Not at all. You can go to rvbaypublishing.com. That's the site where they have numerous uh, periodicals that you could obtain to get a further understanding of the connection. We appreciate the question. I'm going to have to go to the next caller. Uh, is that is that it, sis? Yes, Hotep. Hotep, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm going to go to caller, starting with area code 510. Peace. Peace. Hello? Caller? Caller from 510, area code, you are now on air. Peace. Well, I guess not. <laughs> Okay. Now, I don't see any more hands up in the caller queue. If there's anyone else out there in radio land that wants to present a question to the doctor, please call 347-637-2135. Now, um, Dr. Renato, before you get off, I just want to ask you one quick question based on your travels, because I do understand that you have spent extensive time in North Africa. Including Morocco. Yes. Tunisia and Egypt as well. And you spoke of the fact that the quote-unquote, you know, the more carbonated of our brothers out there, the, the, the darker, you know, aspects of that population is being suppressed at this particular moment. All over the world. 
that black people are dominated wherever we are. I can't really think of anywhere in the world where I can say that African people are in positions of, of power and authorities, and that's uh, that's quite a statement to make. But whether it be in Asia or Europe or the Americas or even Africa itself, black people, my people, your people are in a subordinate position. And when you think of the fact that we gave the world humanity and civilization, and yet we are oppressed wherever I find, we find ourselves, that's a, a sad state of affairs. And you also spoke on the fact that you know you have you had a certain level of communication with individuals, you know, throughout these uh, regions. Some of them weren't able to conversate with you in terms of what was going on, their particular condition, while others were. What did you gather from your communications? Well, just what I stated that wherever we are, we find ourselves disadvantaged. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing wrong? You know, how is it that we find ourselves, no matter where we are, at the bottom of the pile? And I think the big answer is, is we don't have a, a race-first philosophy. African people tend to, I think, love the world, and unfortunately the world doesn't love them. And we find that pretty consistent wherever African people are located. At least that's my experience. Yes, indeed. Uh I'm seeing a whole bunch of hands going up. I'm going to take some more callers real quick. I have another caller calling from a block number 111. Peace. Peace. Caller. Okay. Another caller. We're going to go back to the call queue, and I'm going to take the caller starting with area code 217. Peace. 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 Doc, Dr. Renoko, this question is for uh, Dr. Renoko. Yes, indeed. Uh, I heard you uh, about uh, Muhammad of uh, Arabia's uh, lineage, uh, African. Could you, could you uh, elaborate on that? You're asking me. Yes. Let me make sure I understand your question correctly. You're asking me about the African heritage of people in the Arabian Peninsula? Uh, yeah, you can go. You can go into that. Well, uh, I just well, it, it was a debate going on about the uh, lineage of Prophet Muhammad of uh, fourteen hundred years ago of, of of the Quran of Arabia, uh, and and I heard you say something earlier about his lineage or the the Arabian Peninsula. You can go into that or what what did peace? Well, what I would say is that. Um, you have the tradition uh, begun by a black man named Al-Jahiz, who was an African in southern Iraq who wrote about 1,200 years ago. He wrote a book. He was one of the great writers in the history of the Arab world, a great scholar. And he wrote at a time when racism was beginning to creep into what we might call the Arab world at that time. And he felt the need to address it. So he wrote a book called The Superiority of the Blacks Over the Whites. And he talked about Africans and the great things they had done. And, and also he talked about black being superior to white, even in bi biology and in the world of nature. 
And he mentioned, among other things, that the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad, who was the Sharif of Mecca, fathered ten sons or ten lords, and they are described as black as the night and magnificent. One of them is Abdallah, the father of the Prophet. So we could say that Muhammad himself is of African lineage. More than that, Muhammad is surrounded, or at least there are other Africans around him uh, that were very prominent. There's a black man named Bilal. Many of us have heard of Bilal. Bilal yes, is born in Ethiopia. He's born in Africa. He's the first muezzin. He's the first caller to prayer. He's the person, the muezzin, he's the person who climbed into the minaret in the morning to call the faithful, the devout to prayer. And he was so significant, he's referred to as a third of the faith of Islam. I've been in Damascus, Syria, and I've seen his tomb and a mosque named after him. Bilal is so pious that there's a story that the Prophet Muhammad is supposed to have said, last night, Bilal, I dreamed that I went to paradise, and I found that you had been there before me. There are black muftis, there are black imams at Mecca and Medina. The first Muslim to fall into battle is a black man. And so Africans play a very fundamental role in the development of Islam and a very important role in the history of the Arabian Peninsula itself. And that's just a part of the story. So I think, again, that when we look at history, we are an invisible people. We don't see the role of Africans in, for example, Africans fought in the Crusades with the Christians and the Arabs. There was a movie called The Last Samurai with um, Tom Cruise a few years ago. Mm-hmm. We know, for example, that I mentioned a tradition in Japan for a samurai to be brave, he must have a bit of black blood. Another version of the proverb reads, to make a good samurai, half the blood in one's veins must be black. There was this movie that came out not long ago. I think it was called the, um, I think the Temptation of Christ or something like that. I'm going to show a picture on Sunday of what I believe is the first image of Jesus in the world. It shows him as a black. Hello? I got to give her. Oh, okay. Hello? Peace, 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 peace. Yes, bro. You have one story after the other of black people being left out of the history books, and black people in the early development of Islam and the Arabian Peninsula is only one one more example of that. No doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Does that answer your, uh, your question, yes, Carlos? That, that, yeah, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Continue Peace. to tune in. Peace. Now I'm going to take caller calling from Erico 617. Peace. Peace. Before we uh, ask my question. Hello? Peace. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say peace. Um, this is Arafat from Boston. Peace, Arafat. And I wanted to say peace, brother. How, how you doing? Um, well, first I want to thank uh, Red Pill and Blue Pill for um, coming down to Boston and blessing our gathering last Sunday. Absolutely. And then I wanted to, um, you know, okay, word. And then I want to thank our Brother Renoko just for, you know, his wisdom and for, you know, unveiling our, uh, our story. Um, and my question pertains to, um, well, I'm a musician, and I always, I mean, the best way I, I guess I could word this is I'm a musician, and and sometimes, like, what I want, what I want to hear most from people is a criticism of my work, even before a compliment, because I hear a lot of compliments, but I don't feel that the compliments help me grow as much as the criticism. And so in a lot of, like, you know, um, 
in the past and like lectures I've heard and stuff like that. I've heard a lot of stuff about, you know, the glory of Nubian people and the glory of black people. And I think that's good. And that helped me to, you know, build my esteem to a certain point. But at the same time, um, you know, recently I've been, you know, learning some things on my own and I've heard a few things um, where the, the story of, you know, our, our legacy was not so rosy in terms of being um, showed things that we did wrong. And so I was wondering if there's, you know, if there's anything that you could share on, you know, ways that we, we went wrong or, or messed up, so to say, so that, you know, we know how we, what we need to improve or, or what we need to stay away from or how we can, you know, better fulfill our purpose. I think I'm not going to emphasize the negative. We've got too many people doing that already. I think the majority of us don't know about the positive things that we've done, and therefore many of the historians, put emphasis on the positive because that's the story that we have not heard. Um, and so I think that that is why I will put most of my emphasis. Um, dues and rent. Um, so I, I think that is what I would, I would prefer, you know, to focus on tonight. Uh, certainly all people participate to some extent or another in their own downfall in their own demise, and African people are no exception to that. We've always had collaborators just like we have today. But I think rather than emphasize the negative, what I want to do is emphasize the positive. And I think that if we did anything wrong, it's because we were too kind to strangers, that we allowed other people in our house that took advantage of us. And I think today that we have to go back, I think Brother Singhor, who I want to allow to have a few more words and at least give his contact information again before we get off the air. Yes. I think that he mentioned that we have to embrace the concept of Sankofa, and that is to go back and look at the things that made us great. And that is what I would prefer to emphasize rather than the things that were negative about us, that the family has to come together, that black men have to remember what it is like. To, sometimes I think we've forgotten what it is even, what it means to be a man, that we've abrogated mm. our responsibilities to other people, that we have to control the economies of our community, the educational system of our community. We have to strengthen the black family. I think it's, you know, we have to recycle black dollars. We have to buy black books. We have to support positive black institutions. We have to support, you know, the endeavor that we're engaged in tonight. We have to come to the lectures. We have to support the scholars. So I would rather talk about what we need to do to get it together again than emphasize some of the things that we perhaps didn't do to find ourselves in the situation that we're in today. All right, all right. Um, but do you see any any – I mean, because I do understand what you're saying. I mean, and if, if I think about, you know, my parenting style and the way I, I treat um, – you know, I, I teach my daughter, um, you know, I always give her the positive first. But, you know, is there any, you know, emphasis that should be placed on, you know, some of the things that, you know, because we had an empire, a worldwide empire, you know, and um, that didn't, you know, it's like we, a lot of times what you hear is you hear people pointing the finger and saying, you know, it was because of the white man and they did this and, and that and that. But, I mean, is there something that, you know, in, in terms of a, in a positive way, something that we can learn from and not necessarily oh. negative, but... Well, I just, I'm just saying that I don't know. It's, it's not my job. Maybe other people can do this. 
I'm not saying it's not important, but I don't want to emphasize the negative tonight. I don't want to blame the victim for their victimization. I would just tell people, marry somebody who looks like you. Try to uplift your community. Understand your history. You know, look at the basic things. As Malcolm X used to say, of all our studies, it is history that is most qualified for what I research. Let's look at our history and let's look at the things that made us great. And I, I guess I'll leave it to, for other people. Maybe it's a cop-out. I'm human too. But I'll leave it mm. for other people to emphasize the negative. I just want to emphasize the positive. Indeed. All right. I, I definitely appreciate that. I appreciate your perspective. We and appreciate I appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I have another caller here. Calling from a 510 area code. I'm going to open the line. Peace, caller. You are rocking with the best. Peace. Peace. Caller from 510 area code. Okay, I guess not. 510 is the California Bay Area. That's Oakland, Berkeley, and San Francisco. That's the area I was. Uh, I spent a lot of my youth in. I'm from California. Okay. And in the United States, and. Um, Again, as we wind down, I don't know if there are other callers, but I yeah. want to say it's an honor to have had you on, to have been on your show. I do appreciate it, and I hope it's not the last time that the issues that we confront are not going to resolve just from 9 to 11 a.m. It requires a lot of discussion and a lot of hard work. No but doubt. Opening forums like this, you know, allow us to be introduced to brothers like Singer, and as well as, you know, your introduction to our audience, those that are not, you know, uh, familiar of your work, too familiar to work, and for those that are, that have been wanting to ask questions or just want to hear your wisdom. So forums like this are very necessary. We will very necessary. Them. We will be at the lecture. You know what I'm saying? Let me say, uh, and I do hope you'll mention the lecture again before we close, I but I want to say if people want to get in touch with me, they can email me at renoko at yahoo.com, R-U-N-O-K-O at yahoo.com. I have a new website called www.travelwithrenoko.com. And after the show, after the show, if people want to call me, they can call me at 210-232-7272. But we don't want to forget the big lecture on Sunday afternoon. It's going to be big. I intend to really throw down, as we say in our community, show a lot of pictures and have a lot of discussion. I'm not going to try to impress you with what I think that I know. I just want to share with you my experience, all the photographs. You know they say a picture is worth a thousand words, and seeing is believing. And Brother Singhor is back in the house now, and I would right. love for him to say a few final words. But if before, before you bring Brother Singhor on, yeah. I wanna I wanna actually bring the brother Black Dot on real quick so he can surmise, you know, the festivities that are coming up. Peace, brother Black Dot, peace. Peace, peace, brother Dr. Renoko, this is Brother Black Dot and one of the brothers that will be uh help hosting the event this Sunday. Uh I wanna thank you for the information you have delivered um this evening to the people. Uh the question I had in particular was, uh what are some of the challenges you face 
when you're dealing with younger people who seem to be caught into what we call hip-hop and is it challenging to get them to understand the importance of who we are as a collective? I think that many of our young people have embraced the most negative aspects of our I would argue that we are taught virtually from cradle to grave 24-7 to be anti-African, which means mm-hmm. to be anti-ourselves. I don't know if it was Malcolm or the Honorable Elijah Muhammad or who, or who said, you can't hate the roots of a tree without hating the tree itself. And so I don't want to say, like some of us have said, that we've lost a generation. But certainly we have much, much, much work to do. I did an interview last Saturday uh, with a station in Philadelphia, and a brother told me something I'll never forget. He said that a teacher came to uh, Philly to one of the charter schools, uh, not a teacher, but a teacher called one of the charter schools, and he said that Jesse Jackson had recently been in his school and that the young people <laughs> – didn't know who Jesse Jackson was. One of them said, is that Michael Jackson's older brother? Wow. So, wow. Yeah, that's deep, isn't it? Wow. So rather than the young people, the hip-hoppers, I'm looking at us and saying, where did we go wrong? What was it that we did not convey to that generation? But whatever it was, the past is not dead and history is not finished, and we still have an opportunity, regardless of what has happened, to get things right that the ancestors have spared us because we have a very, very great mission. And my job as a historian is to show what we did in the past to inspire our people, to give us a sense of, yes, we can because, yes, we have. And so um, I just hope some of those brothers come Sunday. I hope they give us a chance. If they're listening to your program, that shows that there is hope and that we have to keep it alive, that we have to do all we can. Look here. 95% of the time, I'm very optimistic about our people. I'm very optimistic about our future. Every now and then, I get discouraged. Sometimes I do wonder that the glory of African people is over. But even when I wonder, even when I have those self-doubts, and I'm human, I have self-doubts, I believe I'm going to fight anyway because our ancestors deserve a fight. Our ancestors paid too big of a price for us to lay down and say, it's over, I quit, I can't do it. I believe that we can do it, and that is the message that I want to leave to the young people, to the old people, and those who are yet unborn, that this generation of African people have not given up, and that we pledge ourselves to the redemption of Mother Africa, whether it be historians or activists or whatever the case may be. So I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but that's the response that I would offer up tonight. Oh, that's great, and I'm looking forward to seeing you this Sunday. And for our brothers and sisters, come out and show the love. Uh, it's going to be a historic event, one that I'm honored to be a part of. Well, brother, I've heard nothing but good things about you. And, brother, and I mentioned that this program tonight, and I mentioned Black Dot. Brother Singer said, who? Black Dot? Is that that brother I've heard so many good things about? So once again, uh-huh. his brother Singer by Yale, and um, I would leave it to my brother, my baba, my elder, to make some final inspiring remarks. Black Dot, pick up, pick up Black Peace. Dot. Peace. This is the this is Black Dot, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Black Dot, I met down at Ceasefire Don't Smoke the Brothers on 14th Street. Yes, sir. Yes, Black Dot. Well, you know, let me just say real quick. Uh, the problem is the baby boomers, and I'm in that baby boomer generation. It's not a no problem with the youth. 
The problem with the baby boomer generation is we dropped the ball, brother, on our ancestors and our elders. Consequently, mm-hmm. our youth are suffering today because they're being programmed by a being that's designed to annihilate them. It's our job, and I'm not going to spend time talking all about that, because as Renoko said, we need to actually deal with the positive. And, and you know, it's those of us that have survived that, that, that era that understand our job, and I'm a youth advocate, to reach out to our young brothers and sisters because it's their minds that will flip this thing back around. And if we don't reach their minds with the right information, with the right energy, with the right love and vibrations from this baby boomer era, and I'm talking about those of us between 48 and 68, that's the era I'm talking about. We're the ones that got to pull up our sleeves, close ranks, quit all of the, 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 the tribalism and the fighting against one another and to reach out and grab our youth and stop them from being taken out and annihilated in their brain and on the streets every day. If we can do that, and I'm sure we can because, as Renoko said, there's nothing that we can't do. We That's can right. turn around quicker than a person can blink an eye. It's the young brothers and sisters that have the energy, they're fearless, and they're ready. We got to give them what they need, what they're asking for, and to help deprogram them away from the system of white supremacy and exploitation and give them the power that we all possess within inside ourselves. With that said, my brother, I just want to say to you all that we're going to win, man. We need to Absolutely. stop following in the and go get the victory and stop all our young brothers and sisters from being hoodwinked by Hollywood and this wrecking industry that's out here. Yes, indeed. The victory is assured. The only thing left is how you're going to walk. You know what I'm saying? You're going to do your George Jefferson strut when you go and get your <laughs> your trophy. You know what I'm saying? That's right. You're going you're gonna to electric slide. How are you going to get That's there? You're going to moonwalk. You're going to get a skateboard to get there. So the actual, you know, how we go on stage to receive our awards is what's left up to us. But the victory is already written in stone. So people That's need right. to lift their head up. You know what I'm saying? Right. See that That's right. right above them that's making its revolution right now as promised. Nothing changes with that. At this particular time, it's on its ascension point going to its equinox. That will never change. We will never change. You know what I'm saying? Let me just... Let me just say, as the, as the ninth successor to the right excellent Honorable Marcus Mosai Garvey and the 10th President General and a humble servant to the will of the Most High and the needs of the people, that you can contact me directly at Sengor, S-E-N-G-H-O-R-B, at hotmail.com anytime because north, south, east, and west, we got brothers and sisters who know how to deal with the best that are looking for the rest of us to close ranks all over the world, not just in the U.S. of A., but all over the world, we got brothers and sisters who have figured it out, who have slipped through the matrix of confusion and the disillusionation of system of white supremacy, and they're looking to connect. In numbers is power. We can knock down these minority people that are coming at us to hold the majority down in a blink of an eye when we unify in practical application. You can also go to the CBPM. Dot org website. That's Collective Black People's Movement website because they are working with the UNIA. We're looking to establish memorandums of understanding with all progressive elements of our people, and we are only a vehicle. There are many vehicles that we must ride to get out of this tide of the illusion of confusion and the system of white supremacy. So we're going to win, brothers and sisters. The question is, is are you ready for our story first, her story, and then history. Mm. Absolutely. 
Callers, we have 50 seconds left. 347-637-2135 is the call-in number if you want to continue with us off of the live stream. Brother Singer, I want to say thank you. Like I said, we definitely will be reaching out, connecting the dots. Brother Ronoko, we will see you on Sunday. It's going to be historic. I suggest that everyone, train, plane, automobile, get here. You know what I'm saying? You want to see this. You want to be in a room collectively with brothers with solutions and sisters as well. So we will definitely see you there. Anybody else have any closing remarks for the live stream? Get it in. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Who was you, you talking to? Brother Bernoko? No, I'm speaking to anyone online that has any closing remarks for the live stream. Is the Brother Dot still with us? Black Dot, you still there? Black Dot is no longer with us. Okay. Uh, I did want the brother to touch on the legacy of uh, Ivan Van Sertima. I actually wanted to ask him about that, but um, I guess that that will be picked up on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, we definitely will be. The lecture on Sunday is dedicated to Ivan Van Sertima. Beautiful, so beautiful. Close by saying that Ivan is one of our greatest scholars. For me, he was a mentor and a friend. He was the leading authority in the world on the African presence before the African presence in ancient America. And his work was phenomenal. I cannot say enough good things about him. He is certainly an inspiration. And, again, on Sunday we'll dedicate the lecture to him. I'll show photographs of him, and I'll speak specifically about the nature of his work. So, again, I just want to thank you all. It's been a wonderful evening, a full evening. I think we covered a lot. Um, yes. I appreciate the input that Brother Singhorn made. You all are doing a wonderful job. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday afternoon. Absolutely, brother. We will be there strong in attendance. No doubt. Hotel. Hotel. Okay, and with that, uh, I saw some more hands. I was going to grab some more callers just in case, you know what I'm saying, it's something that any statements that anyone has to make or any questions that you got for the pills, you're still welcome to call in. I do want to do this collective meditation at 11.11 that the chat room is discussing right now. What can we do right now to have an effect? And I think that it's necessary that, um, you know, we get it in. We could just chant OM right now collectively at 11.11 if we want to see how our consciousness could affect the collective consciousness. Understand that the science is the morphogenetic grid, right, technically is wherever you're at, mm-hmm. okay? Dealing with science, they're saying that the, the, the root of the morphogenetic grid was in Montauk, Montauk Point, Long Island, you understand, where our, you know, uh, our, our, our tribe derives from, you know what I'm saying, the Montauk, the Shinnecock out of the Montauk. So mm-hmm. it's not far-fetched, it's not far off. The morphogenetic grid is right underneath your feet. When you start collectively doing things on a morphogenetic grid, you turn the grid on, right? When you start meditating, different neurons and synapses are going off in your head. That's affecting the grid. And then wherever someone else is at on the grid, then you create a connection. So now you're lighting the grid up. 
this is the this is the science behind the hundred hundred monkey syndrome. This is how mm-hmm. it works because it's affecting the morphogenetic grid. This is why they was up in Montauk trying to infect the morphogenetic grid and using the grid as a throughway to travel through dimensions. So eleven eleven is a portal time. Understand? That's a portal time. That's when a portal is open. So if we would collectively put our energy in the morphogenetic grid, charged as we are, taking this information that we have, everyone to themselves saying, how are we going to make effects? You know what I'm saying? How are we going to change things? You feel me? It's a monumental task, but it could be simplified by dealing with self. And the power that you have that no one could take from you is that you could place yourself somewhere dark right now, leading up to 11-11, and you can meditate on the collective, what we was talking about tonight, collective economics, sovereign economics, collectively triumphing whatever we feel is the things that are holding us back because the victory is already sure certain. But we just have to get our legs together to climb. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, um, I definitely want to stress to my artists out there, my artisans, regardless if we're painters, poets, musicians, you know, those with the power to create. Um, as the brother was so eloquently laying down that our legacy is already, it's, it's, it's in the air, it's floating, it's the ancestors, but it's waiting to be brought into this reality, into this time zone. You understand? I, they, the ancestors need to be resurrected through the arts. You know, so all of my artists out there, let's begin taking all of this information, like, you know, all of these sites to sell the DVDs. They, these are your libraries right here. These are the libraries of Alexandria. You know what I mean? It's, it's wealth of information. And the information that the scholars came ahead, they, they came before us and laid it down. Like the brother said, they, they laid out black prints that you could stack high. As, as tall as some of these city buildings. And for my generation, for this generation that, that is here, the super talented, super conscious, you know what I'm saying, inside of a digital age, you know what I mean, inside of an age that, that, that technology is at such an advancement, I feel like it's really our task to begin to translate a lot of this information into the art that, that, that's of this age. You know what I mean? So this will start resonating. So a brother in Africa could pass another brother a DVD or a CD or something, an MP3. He could email him something right now that could particular that, that will change his whole path. It'll change the direction in which he's heading, and it'll become something that he'll remember that moment for the rest of his creations. You feel me? And, and you know, it's all about collectively like everybody is really putting out there beginning to change the perception because I could definitely relate coming from a, a, a place in life where I did not perceive myself the way that I perceive myself in this present moment and I know the ramifications that it had uh, tied up in the choices that I made on a daily basis all right I'm gonna drop this on perception and I'm gonna log off and go and do my meditation at 11-11. If you want to stay on the rock, that's on you. Oh, no, I won't be talking at 11-11. I'm, I'm going to participate myself. All right, y'all. This is coming 
out of the Scientific American magazine, and they're talking about the brain's dark energy, right? The brain's dark energy, okay? They're saying, of the virtually unlimited information available in the world around us, the equivalent of 10 billion bits per second arrives on the retina at the back of the eye. Because the optic nerve attached to the retina has only a million output connection, just 6 million bits per second can leave the retina, and only 10,000 bits per second make it to the virtual cortex. Now, understand that. 10,000 bits per second out of the actual 10,000 billions per second that hit the retina is being received. After further processing, visual information feeds into the brain regions responsible for forming our conscious perception. Surprisingly, the amount of information constituting that conscious perception is less than 100 bits per second. Such a thin stream of data probably could not produce a perception if that were all the brain took into account. The intrinsic activity must play a role. You understand? So out of 10 billion bits per second of information that's received, we're only using 100 bits per second to make our perceptions. Wow. You understand? So we need to change that particular frequency. We need to change the intake. Okay? So with that, I want to say peace because we're going to get it in right now and change these things. It's a collective meditation. It's at 1111. You can do your own presentation in pure darkness, visualizing whatever your intent is to pierce the collective consciousness. Mine is going to be economic sovereignty, sovereignty as a collective. I want to envision us with ships like Garvey had full of product. You know what I'm saying? Lock your tongue to the roof of your mouth. You can chant om in your head first before you do it outward. And, you know, like, you know, and just amplify it. See it rocking through your body. And with that, I want to say peace. <laughs> All right? So you playing. I'm out of here. It's 1109. Oh, so we rapping the show. I'm rapping. You could be on. You could do whatever you want to do with it, but I'm rapping. All right, so I guess we're going to wrap it up tonight, and we all um going to leave on that beautiful yeah. note right there to all begin to prepare ourselves for that See collective. You're on the astral. All yeah, right. I mean, the, the brother painted the a beautiful we, picture we of... Start meeting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. With, with a powerful meet in the astral realm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And we wake up to what they've done on the astral every day. But uh, I bid everybody peace, peace and love, love and light to the family. Thanks for joining us. You know what I'm saying? Peace. And uh, we definitely, yes, no doubt. Peace. All right, peace.